0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Larry Mathies. Larry is a senior research scientist at JPL and head of the computer vision group there within the mobility and robotic systems section, as well as an adjunct professor in computer science at the University of Southern California. Larry, welcome to this week in machine learning and AI. Thank you.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Let's get started by having you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started working on uh, vision for intelligent systems.
1: Uh, Sure. I actually grew up in Canada. I studied computer graphics uh, for a master's degree and then I went to Carnegie Mellon for a PhD. I was interested in artificial intelligence. Uh, Back in 1981, I spent a year or so uh, as a student of some of the AI faculty there and uh, I felt that in those days the Theoretical underpinnings weren't quite what I was uh, satisfied by, so I ended up working on computer vision for robotics, which to me had a nice uh, combination of of solid uh, underpinnings in math and physics uh, and some of the the appeal of AI and the um, kind of the visual gratification of computer graphics. So it was a nice hybrid.
0: And uh, how long have you been at JPL? Since 1989. So I think that's uh, going almost 29 years. Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, And so what's your research focus uh, there at the lab?
1: I've been working on computer vision for autonomous navigation of unmanned vehicles. Uh, That's been our main focus the whole time. The, you know, specific activities have shifted. I started working on autonomous navigation of ground vehicles. And pretty much the whole time I've been here, I've you know, spend roughly half time working on NASA-related projects and half time working on non-NASA projects. And uh, most of our funding here comes from government sources. So the non-NASA work has been mostly places like DARPA and the Army Research Lab. Uh, so I worked on ground vehicles. Uh, then I uh, started trying to address uh, landers and orbiters on the NASA side and. I always try to complement what we do on the NASA side with related things on the non-NASA side. So in the early 2000s, I started working on vision for drones. Along the way, we've done work on vision for autonomous navigation. So those have been my main activities.
0: Awesome, and you recently returned from the CVPR conference in Salt Lake City, where you presented as part of a workshop on visual odometry and computer vision based on location clues. That was the the title of the workshop. Can you uh, parse that out for us? And and you know what is visual odometry, and and what's the role of the location cues and all that? So, visual
1: odometry is a technique used to estimate the motion of a camera. Uh, Usually that camera is attached to something else you care about. So in my business, that's usually a camera on the robot. So you're using the camera to track nearby features in the environment to estimate the incremental motion of the vehicle. And so it's called visual odometry as an analogy to more traditional forms of odometry based on integrating wheel encoders. So it's a visual dead reckoning. Um, and the part about location clues, um, so visual odometry integrates forward from some starting point and it drifts. Uh, in robotics uh, and related applications, you often want to have an estimate of absolute position and where the system is. And visual odometry doesn't do that. Um, so you need to have some other absolute reference, and uh, location cues could come from basically maps to give you estimates of, of absolute position. In this field, there's a buzzword, uh, simultaneous localization and mapping, which is all about maintaining the history of where you've been uh, and, and updating that whole history. And if you should double back and see places you've been before, that's called loop closure, and then you can improve your estimate of the whole history, and although that that loop closure doesn't necessarily tell you where you are absolutely in the world. It tells you that, you know, you're back to some place you've been before, which is often just about as important.
0: And how do uh, visual odometry and SLAM relate to, uh, or visual odometry in particular, I guess, uh, how does that relate to pose estimation?
1: So pose estimation, pose refers to the sixth degree of freedom position and orientation of, of a system, so the camera. So visual odometry is estimating the pose of the camera relative to some previous reference frame every time you take a picture. Uh, so pose estimation is basically part of visual odometry.
0: And so your talk was on uh, vision systems uh, for planetary landers. Can you walk us through the focus of your talk? Sure.
1: Um, In planetary landers, so by planetary we're referring to a lot of our work at JPL has been focused on landing on Mars. Uh, We did some work in the last decade on techniques uh, for precision landing and landing hazard avoidance on the moon. Uh, And now we're uh, we're working to extend these techniques to be applicable to other places like Jupiter's moon, Europa, Saturn's moon, Titan, um, comets and asteroids. Uh, so in landing, you want to – there's kind of a progression of capabilities that we worked on. So you want to have a good estimate of the terrain relative velocity. So in particular, you know the vertical velocity and then the horizontal velocity – those have to be within strict limits at touchdown or you have a failed landing. That doesn't tell you where you are. It tells you what your velocity is. Uh, next next step is you'd like to know where you are. Um, so that's the precision landing part. For that, you need, you know, I was saying earlier, visual odometry doesn't tell you in absolute terms where you are. Uh, for a precision landing on planetary bodies, we want to know in absolute terms where we are. So we have to have some external reference Uh, What has been the most uh, approachable, uh, often we have orbiters that take high-resolution imagery from orbit of places that we want to land. And so we've been developing algorithms that will use a down-looking camera on the spacecraft as it gets close to the surface to take pictures. And then we register those pictures with the orbital imagery to get position updates Uh, And we can use visual odometry as part of that to track features with this camera during descent to improve the velocity knowledge, uh, so that complements the the map registration to give us position knowledge. Uh, And then for places like Mars, where we've got really, really good orbital imagery, so uh, resolution of pixels on the ground of 25 to 30 centimeters per pixel, which is good in this business, we can see almost all of the landing hazards from orbit before the the lander ever gets there. So we don't really have to do onboard landing hazard detection for Mars, at least not not anything we needed to do so far, because we can map the hazards before we get there. And then we just, as long as we know where we are during descent, we can plan a trajectory to a landing site that we already know is fairly safe. Uh, For other places that we want to go that aren't as well mapped, we will need... Uh, onboard landing hazard detection. So this was germane to the the focus of the workshop because localization, uh, visual odometry are are important in planetary landers, and that was the theme of the workshop.
0: How long have we been using uh, vision-based systems in you know as part of our approach to trying to land things on on other planets?
1: So the first use of vision in real time in landing was in the Mars Exploration Rover mission. So that put the rover, two rovers on Mars in uh, basically January of 2004. Those rovers were called Spirit and Opportunity. So we had a a system on that. So those rovers landed with airbags, which were deployed after a, a parachute phase. So we put a system on that mission that estimated horizontal velocity in the last two kilometers of descent to the surface so that that velocity knowledge could be used as part of retro rocket firing logic to reduce the horizontal velocity to make sure that we didn't burst the airbags. We used airbags for the Mars Pathfinder mission in 1997, very successfully without these techniques, but the rovers by 2003, 2004 were quite a bit heavier. uh, And we learned some things about the winds on Mars that we didn't know before that gave us some concerns. So we added this technique, to add, give an added measure of safety. So that was the first time vision was used in a planetary landing system in real time on board.
0: Tell us a little bit about the general approach uh, that you take to solving these types of problems. You, uh, From our conversation before getting started, it sounds like you tend to focus on model-based approaches as opposed to deep learning or data-driven uh, approaches. Well,
1: so... In doing computer vision for robotics, which is what this is, uh, and especially what we do at JPL is enable missions. Um, And so it's applied research. And you've always got, so it's applied research in contrast with, with basic research at universities. So we've always got a mission in mind. We've always, those missions always have schedule and budget constraints and the, the people who, who build those missions tend to be a little risk averse. So what we always need to do is take advantage of, of anything that can give us advantage. And so that inherently leads us to multi-sensor approaches. So there's been a tendency, or at least there was for a number of years in, in academic computer vision research, to study how much can you do with only a camera? Uh, but in our business, you know, there's always an inertial measurement unit that gives you estimates of, uh, velocities and accelerations and angular rates. So you want to use that. And if you have prior knowledge, um, you want to use that. So we, you know, take advantage of all of those things. And then in the space business, uh, space-based computing is, um, much much less powerful than what we can do on earth so we're talking three to four orders of magnitude so you have to squeeze a lot of capability in you know a very small amount of compute and we're going to places that we've we've either never been before or we don't have much don't have much we have some but not much prior data on so it can be hard to do learning based approaches because you just don't have data to learn from unless you get into you know transfer things that are probably a little bit too cutting edge to, to put in a space vision yet so we've tended to rely on a lot of geometry because um, uh, that you know we've got sort of the solid modeling foundation to do that and you know what we need for for precision landing and uh, landing hazard avoidance is geometry anyway we need the geometry of the terrain we need the position of the spacecraft the velocity of the spacecraft so that's not necessarily strictly geometry but it's it's related it's all with with sensors that are noisy so this is fundamentally navigation you know uh, the whole history of, of of navigation research and development has always paid attention to modeling the noise and the sensors and propagating that into uncertainty in your state estimates, using that uncertainty in the state estimates uh, in planning and control. Um, so we leverage all of those techniques. And you know, we where we can and where it makes sense, we're trying to use state-of-the-art learning methods. So those in particular apply to rovers. Once we're on the ground, we want to do terrain classification. And when we've had rovers driving in areas that we've seen from orbit. Uh, And the rovers, you know, by now on Mars, we've accumulated, uh, you know, several tens of kilometers of traverse, so we've got a lot of images. So we can now start to train uh, classifiers so that the rovers understand whether they're on bedrock or on sand, how much they might slip, how much they might sink. So we've kind of progressed from, from, you know, model-based techniques that exploit multi-sensor fusion with very limited computation. Uh, and very limited prior data to scenarios where we do have more prior data. And we can see in the future there are things in the works that we hope will give us much more computing power in the next decade and be able to use more sophisticated techniques on board.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the more traditional approach where you're uh, incorporating this multi-sensor fusion what are the key research challenges there? And what has been the, how would you characterize the progression of research in that field over the past few years?
1: Uh, well, you know, in, in all of computer vision uh, and robotics, we've been helped tremendously by things that basically came into the field from outside. So, You know, it's, it's cliche to say that advances in computing power and miniaturization and, you know, more compute for less mass power volume and cost has been hugely enabling, but it's true. Same thing goes for inertial sensors. Uh, Same thing goes for cameras. So the whole, you know, the invention of CMOS imagers, which uh, was a big step in miniaturizing cameras and uh and and power for cameras but the you know revolutionary progress in in mobile electronics for consumer applications has spun off effectively uh tremendously valuable sensors processors uh and communication hardware that we can use in robotics Uh, so that's one thing uh within our field um you know, the field matured a lot in the time that I've been in it so the last 30 years 40 years actually including grad school uh, in using you know initially common filters and uh, incremental batch estimation techniques you know incremental bundle adjustments um, so the whole uh, simultaneous localization localization and mapping or, or slam uh, literature has developed over the last Thirty-five years or so, uh, 3D perception has gone from you know being hardly possible in the uh, early '80s to being um, you know routine now. So progress in in algorithms for stereo vision that actually work and that are affordable, progress in other 3D sensors, uh, LiDAR in particular, uh, being small and compact and affordable uh that's made a huge difference so in what i do for planetary exploration there's not a lot of object recognition per se but uh, that's really where one of the most important uh, research thrusts these days is in applications on earth and so that's an area where people tried more model-based methods for years and uh that's all becoming very learning based so the deep learning revolution is having a big impact on how people approach those problems.
0: You mentioned uh, stereo perception and the use of, I guess, image-based approaches to stereo perception as opposed to uh, point clouds like LiDAR. Can you talk a little bit about that that process and how that works? I haven't thought too much about that or come across and and kind of curious about that. Okay,
1: so... I was referring to, uh, let me call it 3D perception. So 3D perception gives you a point cloud. LIDARs do that, there's multiple LIDAR technology, but um, think of it as time of flight ranging. So you you emit a short pulse of laser light and it reflects back to a detector. Mm -hmm. You measure that time of flight that gives you range. Stereo vision gives you a point cloud by using two cameras. And you know the relative positions of those two cameras. And if you can find the same the image of the same object in both of those cameras, then you can triangulate where that object is in three dimensions. So it's it's just like surveyors, where surveyors you know look at the same point in the world from different locations, and then they can triangulate where that point is. You do that in stereo vision by having two cameras and software that for every pixel in, let's say, the left image, you find in the right image the pixel that has the projection of the same object in the world and so if you do that at every pixel then you build up what we call a depth map and you triangulate uh, and that gives you a point cloud that is um, essentially uh, the same kind of data you get from lidar Uh, it's got different noise characteristics Um, there are strengths and weaknesses for each approach But they're both methods to give you point clouds.
0: Okay, okay. Uh, LiDAR is much more expensive than cameras are, and yet it's being used on a lot of autonomous vehicles. Can you maybe talk about some of the relative uh, weaknesses of the stereo vision-based approach?
1: Well, so stereo vision, uh, to do this, this image matching, you need to have some visual texture because that's what helps you find the same point in both cameras so if you're in an environment where you've got a lot of of surfaces with very little texture it's hard to to do stereo vision based range measurement so think of indoor walls that are painted with very little texture or outdoors if you're driving on a road that has you know nice clean smooth asphalt or concrete that's not very textured um, the only way you can get a range measurement to the middle of those surfaces with stereo vision is by assuming there's a continuous surface and you basically interpolate into there. Whereas with a LIDAR, you're, you know, you're emitting light directly, uh, you, need it to, you need the surface to have enough uh, reflectivity to bounce that light back to the sensor, but you don't need any texture per se on the surface. And because a LIDAR is emitting its own energy, it actually works better in the dark than it does during daylight. Uh, stereo vision with you know typical low-cost visible spectrum cameras, you know, it needs an illuminator to work at night. That illuminator has limited range, so then your stereo vision system has limited range. Uh, the error uh, as a function of distance, the error in stereo vision-based range estimates grows as the square of the distance, whereas in LiDAR. Um, there there's, tends to be an analogous error characteristic, but you can design a system to have typically greater range than a stereo system. Uh, on the other hand, as you noted, uh, stereo cameras can be quite small and cheap, and um, what they do for you is they give you, you get all of your pixels at the same point in time, uh, and you can have you know, a field of view that's quite large in horizontal and vertical axis. So you can have a what we call a large field of regard and get all of your data simultaneously, which matters if you're moving, because if you're moving and you know each pixel comes in at a different point in time, you know, that adds complexity of you know, how do you relate that all to if you're trying to build a map of the world and your data is coming in at slightly different points in time, that's a harder problem. Most LIDARs have been scanning lidars, and so they have that that issue of motion registration of the pixels. There are LIDARs called flash LIDARs that give you all of your pixels in the point cloud at the same point in time, but uh, they typically have narrower fields of regard. So those are some of the trade-offs between the two sensors.
0: And you also mentioned SLAM a couple of times. How does that tend to work?
1: Well, if you mean does it work well or poorly, these days it works well. If you mean (laughs) how does the algorithm work? Um, The latter. (laughs) Okay. Um, these are all fundamentally least squares problems. So you're setting up an optimization where you've got measurements. Uh, so you've got a, you know, a set of unknowns, your unknowns are the the poses for the camera for each picture and the 3d coordinates of all of your landmarks. So this whole technique has some roots in, uh, in the field of photogrammetry, uh, which is older than computer vision, and that was used for aerial surveying for you know long before computer vision had become big. Uh, and in that community, they called this this technique of setting up a large least squares optimization for all of the camera poses and all of the landmarks. They called that bundle adjustment because they thought of it as a bundle of rays from the camera out to all of the landmarks. And so your optimization is to find, you know, the positions of all these things that adjust this bundle of rays to to minimize some error measure. Um, So SLAM is basically another term for that kind of technique. And there's been a lot of progress uh, by, you know, a number of people around the world in finding ways to do this very computationally efficiently incrementally so historically in photogrammetry people would would basically do this offline they would take all of their measurements process them offline all at once and give you your map but a lot of what we want to do so in photogrammetry they came up with this term that i think they called uh real-time bundle adjustment where you know suppose you take one new picture can you add that to your optimization and update it efficiently so you get a new map without having to redo all of that computation. So the progress in SLAM has been finding basically linear algebra tricks uh, to do that more and more efficiently over time. So that we can, you know, in real time take new data and update this this network of camera poses and landmark positions. And it's you know it's used more and more sophisticated, basically linear algebra tricks to to make it efficient to do this incrementally.
0: So maybe going back to your talk on the vision systems, your goal was to provide a review of the progress that's been made there and the, some of the challenges that the field has run into and, uh, and perhaps remain. How far did we get in this conversation in terms of what you presented there? Are there other pieces that uh, you can share with us or did we cover the, the bulk of your talk there?
1: Well, I can add a, a few tidbits. Um, so, you know, we talked about how the, the first vision system, real-time vision system in a planetary lander was in the Mars Exploration Rover mission that landed on in 2004. Um, we're working on another rover mission to Mars now that we expect will launch in 2020. And the plan is to have a precision landing capability in that mission where we do what I was describing, where we have a downward looking camera that takes pictures during descent and onboard in real time and registers templates from those pictures to orbital maps. So uh, we're planning to use that in the 2020 rover mission to Mars. So that'll be the first time that's been done. Uh, And then looking beyond that, um, we are, well, NASA's interested, very interested in uh, Jupiter's moon Europa these days. So we're, we're studying possibilities for how would we land on Europa. So I need to be careful to say there isn't a funded mission to do this, but we're, we're studying it. Um, and the reason to go there is uh, you know, profound scientific questions involved. Uh, one of them is, you know, is there life elsewhere than on Earth? Uh, and if there isn't life, are there chemical precursors? you know, kind of on a path toward the chemistry of life, and we know that Jupiter has a liquid water ocean underneath uh, a water ice crust, and that's kept liquid by um, gravitational flexing uh, in the gra- of, the, of Europa between the gravity field of Jupiter and some of the other larger moons further away from Jupiter than Europa. Um, and we can see the effects of that in the surface of Europa, which is all broken up basically like ice flows. Um, so the, the question is, you know, in that liquid water ocean inside of Europa, could there be chemical processes that are related to the chemical processes of life or maybe even uh, microbial life? And that's all very speculative. But um, we know that one of Saturn's moons Uh, Enceladus, it's a fairly small moon, I think it's about 500 kilometers in diameter. Um, We've directly detected water vapor coming out of cracks in the surface of, of Enceladus. And we have pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope of Europa where it looks like there are water vapor plumes coming out of Europa. So that's why we want to go there. The surface of Europa is extremely rough much rougher than any place we've tried to land on mars the orbital reconnaissance imagery that we're going to have of europa is lower resolution than we have for mars so you know if we're ever going to land there we need an intelligent landing system and so we're working to extend the techniques that were developed for mars so that someday they could be applicable to europa um you know elsewhere in the outer solar system Uh, We know there are other places that have liquid water oceans inside moons. Uh, Saturn's moon Titan is one of those. Titan is is unique in the solar system outside of Earth in that there's a lot of of organic molecules on the surface of Titan. Uh, The surface of Titan is 94 Kelvin, so it's really, really cold. Uh, And there are lakes and seas of liquid methane. Uh, So between those organic molecules on the surface and the liquid water ocean inside if, if that liquid water ever came in contact with all the organics there's a lot of potential interesting chemistry that could happen that could build up more and more complex organic molecules and that might teach us some things uh, ultimately about biology. Uh, so we're interested in landing there and that's in, in, in some respects that's even more challenging Uh, The terrain is not that bad, but the remote sensing data is even lower resolution than we would have at Europa. So we have to develop techniques that can cope with that. Um, And then someday, you know, we have also interests in in Venus. Um, You know, there have been landers on Venus. The Soviets put landers on Venus, uh, but they went to some of the most benign terrain there. So to go to more challenging areas on Venus, It's going to be hard. You know, Venus has the densest atmosphere in the solar system by far and the hottest temperatures on the surface by far. And it's got a very opaque cloud layer. So a very hard navigation problem on Venus. And we don't know how to solve that yet.
0: From a computer vision perspective, clearly, you know, when you're looking at these different missions, there are... Uh, huge system engineering types of challenges, adapting to the constraints of a given mission. How do the algorithmic requirements change the the way you approach each individual mission? Or rather, how does each individual mission change the way you approach the algorithms? I guess.
1: Yeah. So, you know, like I said at the start, um, we're mission oriented, uh, and the way NASA works, at least the the planetary science. Uh, Really, I think all of all of NASA's science is you start with what are the scientific questions you want to answer and then you work backwards from that to what technology do you need and that's always guided by what can we afford? uh, And and what has an acceptable level of risk? So it's kind of case-by-case We look at the science we want to do at a particular planet or moon uh, and then how do we do that science and to? you know, minimize the cost and the risk, we ask, what can we leverage that we built before? So it minimizes the the cost of new development and minimizes the risk that it's going to work. Uh, So you have to find a happy medium where you find an engineering solution that gives us the science within affordable cost and acceptable risk. Uh, So this is all motherhood, (laughs) Um, but that is the process.
0: You also did another presentation at uh, CVPR on uh, onboard stereo vision for drone pursuit. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that one?
1: Yeah. So, you know, as I was saying, we we try to have complementary work going on where we have some uh, long-term objectives for capabilities uh, to develop for NASA, and our charter includes applying... Unique expertise to problems in other domains that are complementary. So, um, you know, autonomous navigation of drones is one of those areas that's complementary. I can put in a plug. We're we're developing the first ever rotorcraft for Mars. Uh, it was recently approved to be a technology demonstration on that 2020 Mars rover mission. Um, so, you know, the, the work that we were doing in in drone. Pursuit or sense in the void is, is complementary to those things. So, uh, and that was funded by the Army Research Lab. Uh, so, we were inspired by uh, you know, if you want to have a, a team of cooperating drones doing anything, you don't want them to collide with each other. Um, and in some applications, you might want to minimize communication. Uh, so, you don't necessarily want the drones exchanging a lot, in, a lot of information. You may not have access to good external localization sensors like GPS so you need it to all be on board um, and so we thought you know long term you'd really like the drones to be able to detect each other with their own onboard sensors so they know that know that they're present they can estimate the position and velocity of other nearby drones and then you know, do their own path planning and control with awareness of other nearby aircraft. So our initial motivation was cooperative teams, but these techniques are are equally applicable to situations where it's not cooperative, where you might want to be pursuing another drone, and that's relevant to, um, you know, what people call counter UAS or counter unmanned air systems. So there's a lot of concern about small drones being used for hostile purposes um so drone pursuit uh when we we're doing our research uh just logistically it turned out to be easier to do experiments in the pursuit scenario than in the cooperative scenario so the paper ended up um describing techniques that were relevant to both the cooperative team scenario and the pursuit scenario, but all of our testing was in the pursuit scenario. And then the stereo vision aspect comes back to our earlier discussion about the relative pros and cons of stereo vision versus LIDAR. So here you've got very limited uh, payload weight and power capacity on small drones. So if we can do something with cameras, especially if those cameras can give us a very wide instantaneous field of regard in horizontal and vertical axes. You just can't match that with a the LIDAR these days. And these are both techniques that, direct, well, that, that measure 3D range, and through that you can estimate velocity of the other aircraft. So it's quite handy if you actually know the, the 3D position and velocity of the other aircraft. Uh, so we started with techniques, in particular stereo vision that would give us that, Those do have range limits, so we can only see other aircraft, you know, some limited distance away, 10, 15, maybe 20 meters at the outside with our current cameras. Um, So this was the first paper to show that uh, this was possible in a fully integrated fashion outdoors without the aid of external position sensing sensors. You know, there needs to be extensions to be able to see... Uh, other drones further away you know stereo vision is probably not going to cut it for that so that probably requires techniques that can use a single camera those required more work to develop and test than was within the scope of our paper
0: Uh, and from the algorithmic perspective is the system used here uh primarily a composition of some of the things that we've already talked about, or are there other techniques uh, that uh, are, are specific to this system that uh, might be interesting to explore?
1: Well, the work in this paper was, was mostly a composition of techniques we've already talked about. So, you know, in, in some respects, it's analogous to the constraints we have in space because onboard computation is fairly limited uh you know it's a lot more than we have in space but it's still pretty limited so we were using simple techniques to do reliable 3d perception at short range that let us do a first demonstration of this capability uh one of the questions i was asked was could you use deep learning to detect the other aircraft it's a very good question um we had not yet tried that for lack of training data But uh, that's certainly conceivable. Um, Another thing that could be used is uh, basically difference imaging. So, you know, a standard technique in surveillance with stationary cameras is just to take, you know, pictures over time and subtract them and look at what's changed. And that lets you pick up things that are moving uh, around the camera. Uh, But that's harder to do when the camera itself is moving. Um, and so that was one of the complexities that was out of scope of this work. But uh, another approach to detect moving drones from, from a drone that itself is moving is background subtraction. But then you have to do motion compensation uh, for the motion of your own drone. That's uh, something to look at in the future.
0: In the paper itself, you showed standard black and white images, but then also these uh, multicolored... Images look like some kind of spectral type of image or something. What what are those?
1: I'm thinking you're probably referring to uh, what we call depth maps. So yeah, that's a false color illustration of the the range at each pixel. So when we do stereo vision, we get an estimate of range at each pixel. You know, a simple way to visualize that is just to color code the range and then show that as a as an image. Got it.
0: And so this work that you did this was a full end-to-end system not just the it wasn't a simulation you actually put this on a drone and put it out in the wild is that right that is right how did it do
1: (laughs) well it did quite well um we tested it you know on the campus of, of jpl and on the campus of one of our sponsors um you know, this problem is a lot easier if the other drone you're looking at is silhouetted against the sky. Then it's actually a very easy problem. So it's much harder if the other drone you're looking at is seen against what we call background clutter. So, you know, if it's at, if it's below the horizon, essentially. So if you're seeing it against trees or buildings or ground and that changes over time, uh, it becomes much harder if you look toward the sun because the, you know, sun causes, all sorts of glare artifacts in the image. Uh, and we found that um, a key advantage of our technique is that it's pretty robust to those issues because the fact that we're using 3D perception means as long as the drone is within range, we're not fooled by background clutter because we can segment that 3D object from the background using the point cloud there. And when we look toward the sun and there are artifacts in the image, uh, You know, unless things get really, really bad, we can often still do 3D perception that is adequate to track the drone. Uh, And since we've, you know, let's say before you turn directly at the sun, you had a 3D model. You had a model of the position and velocity of the other drone from previous images. So you can do prediction for a short amount of time, you know, if you're blinded by the sun. uh, And then probably recover track because you've got that knowledge knowledge model based knowledge that you can use for prediction so um it worked pretty well
0: and how do you measure the performance of the system do you kind of go through after the fact and measure maybe distance from where the drone thought the thing it was supposed to be following was and you know um, compare that to some error function or is there some automated way that you're able to to measure performance
1: so, you know, that's an excellent question. You always need some kind of ground truth to measure performance. Uh, in our case, we manually labeled the images. So we, you know, we marked, put bounding boxes around the drone. Another way to do it would be if we had, you know, an external sensor that told us where everything is. So if we had GPS, for example, on both aircraft, uh, you could use that to give position knowledge and uh, in this case, I think we relied on manual labeling. We didn't have the sensor infrastructure finished to do that all with GPS. Um, but that would help automate things.
0: Well, great. Larry, this was a really interesting, uh, really interesting conversation. I appreciate you taking the time to share with us what you're working on.
1: Well, thank you for the time to talk about it. I appreciate that.
0: Thanks. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on Larry or any of the topics covered in this episode, head over to twimlai.com slash talk 170. If you're a fan of the pod, we'd like to encourage you to pop open your Apple or Google podcast app and leave us a five-star rating and review. Your reviews go a long way in helping new listeners find the show. As always, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.